Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. The theme for this episode is crime, trials and the underworld. So be prepared for a wee bit of sleuthing, a little violence and a lot of intrigue. First up, we've got none other than the master of the spy novel himself, John le Carre, with two short extracts from the audiobook edition of his new book, A Delicate Truth. You can listen to the final extract in our Father's Day podcast out on the 11th of June, just to keep you guessing. Following that, we have Paul French, author of Midnight in Peking, talking about his new Penguin special, The Badlands, Decadent Playground of Old Peking. Fact is stranger than fiction in this tour of Old Peking's criminal underbelly, and there are certainly a few sinister characters that could warrant a book all in their own. Then we have an interview with Austin Ratner, author of The Jump Artist, who talks about the remarkable true story of Philippe Halsman, a photographer to the greatest names of Bohemian Paris, and his involvement in a shocking murder trial that shook Europe. And finally, we have an audiobook extract from James Oswald's Natural Causes, read by Ian Hanmore. Warning, this is not for the faint-hearted. First up, here's John le Carre reading from his new book, A Delicate Truth. So in this passage, which comes early in the book, a man called Paul, whose real name we don't know, who is a high-ranking British foreign servant, is standing high up on the rock of Gibraltar, looking down on a secret operation which is being conducted by a British team on the land and an American team coming in from the sea. And their purpose is to seize a man, steal him, put him on the boat and get him out to a waiting ship. So here we have Paul alone. The team's gone down to engage. We have Paul alone standing on the rock and this is what he sees. Now with his night glasses, now without, he peered into the density but saw no more sign of Jeb or his men. On the first screen, the inflatable was closing on the shore. Surf was lapping the camera. Black rocks were approaching. The second screen was dead. He moved to the third. The camera zoomed in on House 7. The front door was shut. The windows still uncurtained and unlit. He saw no phantom light held by a shrouded hand. Eight masked men in black were clambering out of the inflatable, one pulling another. Now two of the men were kneeling, training their weapons at a point above the camera. Three more men stole into the camera's lens and disappeared. The screen switched to the coast road and the terrace, panning across the doors. The door to House 7 was open. An armed shadow stood guard beside it. A second armed shadow slipped through it. A third, taller shadow slipped after him. Shorty. Just in time, the camera caught little Jeb with his Welsh miner's wading walk, disappearing down the lighted stone staircase to the beach. Above the clatter of the wind came a clicking sound like dominoes collapsing. Two sets of clicks. Then nothing. He thought he heard a yell but he was listening too hard to know for sure. It was the wind. It was the nightingale. No, it was the owl. The lights on the steps went out. 
and after them the orange sodium street lamps along the metal track. As if by the same hand, the two remaining computer screens went blank. At first, he refused to accept this simple truth. He pulled on his night vision glasses, took them off, then put them on again, and by the torch's green glow roamed the computer's keyboards, willing the screens back to life. They would not be willed. A stray engine barked, but it could as well have been a fox as a car, or the outboard of an inflatable. On his encrypted cell phone, he pressed one for Quinn and got a steady electronic wail. He stepped out of the hide and, standing his full height at last, braced his shoulders to the night air. A car emerged at speed from the tunnel, cut its headlights and screeched to a halt on the verge of the coast road. For ten minutes, twelve, nothing. Then out of the darkness, Kirsty's Australian voice calling his name. And after it, Kirsty herself. What on earth happened? He asked. She steered him back into the hide. Mission accomplished. Everyone's ecstatic, medals all around, she said. What about Punter? I said everyone's ecstatic, didn't I? So they got him? They've taken him out to the mothership? You get the fuck out of here now. And you stop asking questions. I'm taking you down to the car. The car takes you to the airport like we planned. The plane's waiting. Everything's in place. Everything's hunky-dory. We go now. So this second passage is about, as it were, our other hero. Not the man Paul we heard about, but Toby Bell, who's half his age or less, who is making his way through the Foreign Service to a distinguished position as a private secretary to a minister. And here he is in mid-career, and he arrives in Cairo as a young diplomat with the British Embassy in Cairo. Toby Bell is the British Embassy's blue-eyed boy. Ask anyone from the ambassador down. A six-month immersion course in Arabic, and blow me, the lad's already halfway to speaking it hits it off with Egyptian generals and never once gives vent to his callow personal opinions, a phrase that has lodged itself permanently in his consciousness, goes diligently about the business in which he has almost accidentally acquired expertise, barters intelligence with his Egyptian opposite numbers, and, under instruction, feeds them names of Egyptian Islamists in London who are plotting against the regime. At weekends, he enjoys jolly camel rides with debonair military officers and secret policemen, and lavish parties with the super-rich in their guarded desert condominiums. And at dawn, after flirting with their glamorous daughters, drives home with car windows closed to keep out the stench of burning plastic and rotting food as the ragged ghosts of children and their shrouded mothers forage for scraps in filthy acres of unsorted rubbish at the city's edge. And who is the guiding light in London who presides over this pragmatic trade in human destinies, sends cosy personal letters of appreciation to the reigning head of Mubarak's secret police? 
none other than Giles Oakley, Foreign Office intelligence broker extraordinaire and Mandarin at large. So it's no surprise to anyone except perhaps young Bell himself that even while popular unrest throughout Egypt over Hosni Mubarak's persecution of the Muslim Brotherhood is showing signs of erupting into violence four months ahead of the municipal elections, Toby should find himself whisked back to London and yet again promoted ahead of his years to the post of private secretary, minder and confidential counsellor to the newly appointed junior minister of state to the foreign office Fergus Quinn, MP, latterly of the Ministry of Defence. Next, we have Paul French talking all about the badlands of Old Peking. Paul French, the author of Midnight in Peking, best-selling story of a terrible murder in Peking in the uh, years just prior to the Second World War, has now produced a Penguin special, The Badlands, the decadent playground of Old Peking. First of all, just clarify the title. What are the Badlands? The Badlands, was, it, was an, it was a term that was very popular in the 1930s for areas in cities that were really where all the sin was, was corralled. It was where the whorehouses were, the bars, uh, you know, the gambling. That's where everything went on. Um, American term, really. Um, but it was, it was taken up around the world. And uh, certainly many cities had badlands. You know, Shanghai's badlands was very well known in the 1930s and 40s and very large. Peking's was much, much smaller, though. But it was a badlands. And in, in the Peking badlands were where the foreigners, the Europeans and the Americans and the odds and sods, the white Russian refugees and so on, it's where they got up to their sin. It wasn't an area where the Chinese went particularly, but it was this congregation of whorehouses, dope dens, uh, late night bars, flop houses for people who were in a fairly transient situation. Um, and so it had that name and it was always referred to as that in the press and, and by people. The point about this book is it's a kind of a companion volume to Midnight in Peking because although that, that story has as its central tale uh, the, the, the murder of Pamela uh, and the attempts by her, her adopted father to find out who killed her, you mention it both in passing and in some detail in the book the characters who were there, some of the people who populated this area. And this book gives a chance to have the slightest, uh, a more in-depth look at their lives. It does throw up some quite extraordinary Facts. I mean, apart from anything else, the characters themselves. Can we start with possibly the the core of it all? Shula, Shura. Mm. Um, what an extraordinary person he, she, was uh, to re to maintain such power and such mystery. Tell me a little bit more about about Shura. Well, the murder investigation into Pamela Werner's death, which is really the story of Midnight in Peking, very quickly ended up centering on the Badlands, look, looking for who who were the people that might have done it and where where they were hanging out. Um, I touched on some of those characters, but in order to keep the narrative flowing, some of them were minor minor witnesses or gave minor pieces of information. I didn't really have time to stop and tell their whole backstory without sort of losing the reader on the, on the ongoing investigation. Um, but what I found out when I went around and, you know, talked to people at festivals and bookshops and things and emails I got, it was people were fascinated by this, this Badlands area and these characters. And, and the man who many called the king of the Badlands in Peking was a man called Shura Giraudi, who features in Midnight in Peking in a very small way. But, but people were fascinated by him, not least because he was an hermaphrodite, uh, which is not something you bump into every day. 
um, and would sometimes appear as a woman, sometimes appear as a man. People's recollections of him, some people, you know, remember him in flowing, gorgeous silk dresses, um, you know, entertaining uh, Chinese generals and warlords. Others remember him as a man in a sharp suit, uh, running casinos and, and brothels in the Badlands. Um, it was also thought by the Shanghai Municipal Police at the time and the Peking Police at the time that he was probably behind a, a gang of white Russian uh, thieves who stole jewellery and in Peking and then fenced it through uh, Shanghai. He was also thought to be responsible for the, to date, still the biggest bank robbery ever in China's history in 1937, where the Bank of Peking was robbed. And although they covered their faces with masks, the Chinese tellers remembered that they spoke a funny language and all had blue eyes. So that sort of narrowed it down a little bit. Um, but he is this incredibly mercurial character who, even in the investigation in Midnight in Peking, it was quite clear that he knew everyone and everything involved. He's one of these people that just connects everyone together. And yet, when I published Midnight in Peking, I got emails from various people around the world, some who had been children and remembered Shura, one woman whose mother had been a dancer in a dance troupe that he organized in the Badlands for the nightclubs. And some people remembered him as this uncle-like figure who was sort of, you know, played a key role in the white Russian community. Others remembered him as, you know, the guy that had his finger in every pie of the Badlands. And I just thought, you know, he, he's got to be worth digging around in a little bit. Absolutely extraordinary story. Uh, one of the names you would not expect to crop up during the course of a discussion of the Badlands in the uh, Peking of the 1930s is Margot Fontaine. That was an absolutely extraordinary discovery to find her name mentioned in this decadent playground. Um, one of the stories that was very interesting to me was I, I was contacted by a woman who uh, was in her late 80s, actually, and her mother had been a white Russian uh, dancer in Shura Giraldi's troupe, uh, her Russian name was Tatiana. She had changed her stage name to Lillian. And she sent me a wealth of lovely uh, photographs of her mother on stage and in Peking living this sort of uh, life, which, which are in the uh, e-book, and um, told me a lot of stories that she remembered as a child, both about the murder of Pamela Werner and about life in the Badlands. But Tatiana had started out as a white Russian in um, Shanghai. And in the 1920s, there was this uh, great craze for ballet with the Ballet Russe and, and, and all of the white Russian uh, ballet masters that, that were living and working in places like Shanghai. Um, and she went to study uh, ballet uh, with other children, uh, one of whom was a, uh, a British girl whose mother was a very uh, sexy and good-looking Brazilian woman who wanted her to learn ballet called Peggy Hookham. And Peggy Hookham was the best in the ballet class and actually... Um, went on to star in many of the amateur dramatics that the British love to put on endlessly everywhere in the empire, but, but also in Shanghai. And um, she was so good that she was sent to London to train uh, at Sadler's Wells. And um, Peggy Hookham didn't really seem like the best name for a prima ballerina. So she took her mother's name, which was Fontaine, and became, of course, Dame Margot Fontaine. But she started out hoofing on the boards of the, of, uh, the um, Lyceum Theatre in Shanghai. It's a tricky mix for you because these are such extraordinary characters. And reading this, it feels almost like reading the, the, the backstories of characters in a, a Raymond Chandler novel or a, a, a Tashiel Hammett novel. But at the same time, these are real lives of real people. Uh, now, you've researched this deeply for some, for some years. You also still live, still live and work in, in China. And you talk about the kind of moral degradation as if the, the things kind of flow like a liquid down to this base where they get worse and worse and worse until eventually people are forgotten, disappear, and, and fall off the face of, of recorded history. When you're writing it, is it difficult to distinguish between the truth and reality of their human 
existence and the drama that they represent. Well, of course, you know, they didn't really realise that they were in a drama. They were just struggling to survive. I mean, the, the Badlands was really a... Com the people that lived there were really a combination of people who had nowhere else to go, uh, the white Russian community particularly, as well as um, by the mid-1930s, a small population of uh, uh, Jews that were having to leave Germany and Austria and so on as well and, and really didn't have much money. Um, and then people who gravitated towards the bad land because they were bad and wanted the land to be bad in. So the bad land seemed like a good idea. Um, and these people came from all over the place um, and tended to be involved in prostitution or, um, or drugs or, or something like that. Um, and then there were others, actually, like um, I talk about the madams of, uh, the, of, of some of the brothels in the Badlands who were mostly Russian or East European of some sort, and the prostitutes uh, who worked there, whose stories were very sad. And mostly, mostly those were women who were trafficked out of Eastern Europe through London, actually, to, um, to Asia. Uh, and across Asia, to, to, to Manila, to Hong Kong, to Shanghai, and also to Peking. Um, and, and their stories were very sad. And of course, as things got very hard with the Japanese invasion in um, July 1937 and the occupation of Peking, times got very hard, uh, cold winters and so on. Business was slow and a lot of drugs around at that time as well. And of course, these girls ended up uh, sort of, you know, um, sinking really into the Badlands. And, and, and I'm afraid that, you know, in most cases, we don't know the end of the story. And when we do know the end of the story, it's invariably sad. Do you think things have got any better? Or do you think this is just this is an ineluctable element of human nature, that there will be this kind of trading in misery? Well, there seems to be. I mean, you know, I, you know, when I was looking at, for instance, uh, two of the madams who came from, you know, that highly disputed area around Russia and Poland at that time, Bessarabia, as it was sort of known. I mean, th these were people who were, were trafficked by, you know, organized gangs as young girls out of Bessarabia, usually through London or if, or if it French gangs through Marseille, um, and sent out east as commodities, basically, in much the same way that we still have a, a major and tragic problem with, with um, you know, trafficked women uh, today. Um, you know, the, the, the tendency of prostitutes to both, uh, you know, drink too much and take too many drugs and have, you know, very bad taste in men um, is, is, is there as well. And of course, people could prey on them. I mean, I tell the story of Saxon, who's, who's one, the one that I, you know, found hardest to find anything on, really, who was a, a, a vulgar German from, from Russia. I mean, vulgar with a, a G and an A, although he's probably vulgar in, in other senses as well. Um, who, uh, you know, was a professional pimp and, and, and a drug dealer. And this man had ended up in Peking, probably a deserter from the Russian army in the First World War, um, and really used these girls. I mean, you know, he was responsible for working them as hard as possible and then hooking them on drugs so that they could work even harder. And, of course, when it got to the point where, you know, um, they were in a state that they couldn't really work and earn money anymore, he, uh, he dumped them and left town. Similarly with Joe Nauf as well, the uh, um, again, um, an American, I think I might say. Yeah, I mean, there, there was another group. There were another group in the Badlands that crop up, both in Shanghai and, and Peking as well, who are kind of soldiers. I mean, often British soldiers, Italian Marines, French soldiers, but, but largely it seems to be American Marines who just uh, at the end of their service tour or 
halfway through sometimes they just went AWOL. There was a lot of people going AWOL. Um, they would just decide they weren't going home. I mean, it was the, de- the depression. It was pretty, you know, there wasn't much to go back to necessarily as an ex-soldier. So they stayed in the Badlands and they seemed to have, you know, sort of provided muscle on the door as well as running drugs. Uh, Joe Nauf, who, who, you know, really was a key character in Midnight in Peking as well. Uh, I, there was a lot about him in the American files uh, that, that were sent back to Washington at the time about, you know, Americans who may have been guilty of not just crime, but of collaboration with the Japanese as well. And he really did run a, um, a pretty large drug dealing operation there and, and, of course, was able to do so because he did collaborate with the Japanese as well. Uh, with the, at that time, they were shipping in both opium and um, heroin pills, which, which when money got tight, heroin pills became a very quick fix in Peking. And he was dealing that. I mean, a very violent man, as drug dealers often are. Um, you know, involved in prostitution and all of the rackets in, in the Badlands. Just one final thought. The Badlands themselves bordered the legation quarter where all the embassies of the foreign nations were uh, were situated. It was I mean, almost open, the fact that this area existed. It, was, it doesn't seem to have been policed particularly uh, strongly. There was no, no sense of it being closed down. Why? Why was it given that that license to run the way it did because it does seem to have been recognized as a place for crime yeah well this is sort of what's fascinating me about these people because you know you are right next door to the legation quarter and, and the story of the people that lived in the legation quarter is very well told you know the diplomats the businessmen the you know the the, the sojourners who passed through at that time on their grand tours, you know, everyone from Wallace Simpson to Harold Acton and so on. Those stories are very well told. Right next to it was the Badlands. That story is not told because, of course, you know, it's not something you'd put in your memoirs or your diaries or anything that might survive for posterity. And the sort of people that live in the Badlands are very, you know, this is the challenge for me, are very hard to track down. You know, they don't leave records. You know, prostitutes never use their real names. They always lie about their age. You know, drug dealers, of course, don't necessarily write their memoirs that often. Um, so it's um, very hard to track these people down. The situation in Peking at the time was one of a very confused policing uh, arrangement, as it was in Shanghai as well. Um, the Chinese government was very weak at that point. Its, um, its remit did not run very far. Peking was not the capital of China and hadn't been since 1927. Uh, Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek had moved it to, um, to, to Nanjing. Um, So there was a certain amount of uh, self-policing by the foreign community. The Chinese police tended to look at it and think, well, we'll probably take a little bit of money off the bars. Well, some things never change. Um, You know, but um, basically these are foreigners um, and we're not going to worry too much about it. We'll let them police themselves. So they kind of just sat back and let what happens happens. Now, you know, occasionally something very bad would happen, like the murder of Pamela Werner, and the police would have to get involved. But in general, you know, all that they really did, uh, which is a true story, they used to send a cart through the Badlands every day in the winter to pick up the dead bodies. So, so you know, people who were left, uh, who'd frozen to death there, you know, penniless white Russian refugees or overdoses or whatever, they would just collect the bodies. There was one church, the Asbury Church, which was known as the Island of Hope, that received um, a large number of uh, unwanted uh, you know, white babies as well, obviously, from, from the prostitutes and just people who didn't have enough money to support them. So so this area 
It was fairly small in terms of the size of the entire city, but it was just left to its own devices and the people in it were left to their own devices. And so trying to find out who they were, where they came from, how they got there, how they survived and what ultimately happened to them has been the sort of challenge of that. And Because after Midnight in Peking came out, people contacted me. They sent me photographs. They sent me more details. I had stuff from before that I hadn't been able to use in the book. I thought, oh, I really do want to put this together. And, and, and sort of show that there was this community of sorts that, that, that existed there in these badlands, and they've sort of been a bit forgotten by history. Paul French, thank you very, very much indeed. Thank you. Now we have an interview with Austin Ratner, who takes us through the world of Bohemian Paris and a murder that shocked Europe. You were all set to be a doctor, but you wanted to be a writer. What made you choose this story? How did you choose this man, this tale? So um, I, I was searching around for a possible subject of a historical novel. And um, I really, I, I'm not sure what my <laughs> line of thinking was at the time, but I put the search term psychoanalysis and murder into Google. And probably the only time that those search terms have ever been put in um, Actually, if you put them in now, they probably lead straight to me. <laughs> but it turned up this sort of obscure article in Reform Judaism magazine about a man named Philippe Halsman, who I'd never heard of. As it turned out, I had a, um, I had his portrait of Einstein hanging on the wall of my room as a kid, which I later discovered. But I saw this, this incredible story um, about a young guy who was 22 years old hiking with his family in the Alps and was falsely accused of murdering his father in a, the sort of anti-Semitic climate of Western Austria. And um, and then there was, so there was a sort of horribly tragic thing. He attempted suicide in prison and almost died of tuberculosis in prison. And then he later became the photographer who shot more covers of Life magazine than anyone ever did. Um, so I, I, yeah, I got very, I mean, I just got very curious about um, filling in the blanks of this this amazing story. But I suppose what I'm wondering is why that tale, uh, just because it, it's, you know, it happened in 1928, 29. Yeah. Uh, he went on to become uh, famous. Uh, the, the, the story had also been, you know, there'd been a film made about the trial and what have you. Uh, I suppose... Of all the characters in history, of all the incidents in history, what was it about that mm. that set sparks running in your imaginative brain as well as your uh, as well as your historical one? Well, I mean, in part, I was driven by curiosity because the story was not well known in, in at least in in, in the English speaking world. So I was just in part driven by curiosity to learn more about something that that that, that wasn't. Um, very well known. But I think that the the subject of false accusation is one that it's compelling to a lot of writers and filmmakers. Um, it's a dramatic format for exploring the universal theme of sort of false guilt in the way that, that I think people in general can falsely accuse themselves and carry around a sort of burden of, of of guilt and and being falsely thrown in prison is a kind of outward dramatization of of that kind of inner problem of of guilt that has compelled writers from Shakespeare and before and since. There is, I mean, sort of factually, there's the the it is set up almost like a fable, isn't it? The the the, the father's death, right, is 
not only appears inexplicable, but never is satisfactorily explained. So it, it, no. it carries a kind of mystery of yeah. fable and the unconscious lurking in there yeah. in, 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 the, in the story itself. But having yeah. found this fascinating story, mm-hmm. what made you decide to novelize it rather than to do a, a, a documentary style? thing what made you turn it into a, a piece where you you were giving yourself the freedom to imagine rather than just report well I, uh, Thomas Keneally said about Schindler's List that he wrote it as a novel because he was a novelist and there's some truth to that I think I mean I was always interested in um, writing fiction precisely because a novel or a short story a piece of fiction is the um, best way it it provides the best resources for unpacking the inner life and that was always what really compelled me about this figure of Philippe Halsman was what did he go through on the inside um more than just I mean the 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 outward facts of his life are kind of extraordinary on their own terms they're amazing um and he seemed to intersect with the life of every famous person in history from Hitler to Sigmund Freud to Einstein and um, whether because they knew of him through the trial or because he later photographed them. Einstein was, was both. Einstein helped to get him out of prison and he later photographed him as a, as a photographer. But, um, but I just, I, I mean, I wanted to know how he, I wanted to, to imagine how he survived this ordeal as a young man and turned tragedy into joy in in his work. Um, And there's a limit to how much you can really factually uncover that. I mean, no matter how much facts you you have, I mean, even if you're you're writing an autobiography, (laughs) you you can't even know yourself completely. So you have to sort of... uh, uh, tell you have to tell uh you have to fill in the blanks imagine a story that that has emotional truth to it that that and i think the emotional truth that you have in fiction is is even more valuable than um than than historical fact i think aristotle said something very demeaning towards historians along those lines (laughs) uh stylistically um you, of course, allow yourself the little things like sort of time jumps and you, you miss, I mean, quite deliberately, really. Uh, it, it's very interesting to see which bits you chose to narrate in detail and to go inside the characters' heads and which bits you don't. You know, you, there, there are some very dramatic bits which are just referred to rather than actively described. Um, and you also make a point of in, in, including, for example, lots of German phrases, mm-hmm. um, Austri- Austrian phrases, which you then translate for us. But I'm intrigued by... By the, partly the sort of how you go about deciding what what and how to dramatize, and also that kind of stylistic trope uh, mm-hmm. of, of using the, the 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 foreign language and what effect you are hoping to create with that. Well, using the foreign language, I, I think for me it it was intended to have two functions really. I mean, one is just to get it lends a specificity to it, lets you know that you're in Austria in the scene. Um, just in the same way that uh, using a detail like uh, the, the the style of dress or the food or, or something like that, it just provides color and specificity to make it alive. Um, I, for me, also, I mean, as a as a person with a Jewish heritage, the German language is very charged for obvious reasons, um, and it, it's almost you know sort of like a scary language. And I don't I don't speak German. I worked with 
translators um, and uh, uh, research assistants to help me with with the research in German and translating German archival material. Um, so German retains, uh, there's a certain scariness to it as a Jewish person. And then, and, and it's, it's also opaque to me because I don't speak it. And I was thinking Halsman did speak German, but, um, it wasn't, it wasn't his first language. I mean, he, he knew Russian and Latvian, um, much better than he did German. And I, I, I feel like using, using the foreign languages helps to give you the sense of being a stranger in a strange land. You make that point in one court scene in particular where he's the evidence is coming and the questions are coming thick and fast and he is caught between what he can instinctively understand of what's being said in German and then has to resort to translating it in his head in order to understand it and that sets out, uh, sort of creates a, um, uh, a sort of pause, a slight barrier between mm-hmm. himself and what's going on around him and it also triggers other thoughts and it's a, a really... I think effective way into the confusion that that scene must have been for. Yeah, for a method of, of representing his disorientation, really. And yeah, that's a better way of putting it. Yeah, no, yeah. no. You, you, <laughs> I think you put it great. Um, is it is it possible, given that you've you've finished the novel before he becomes the the celebrated photographer that he that he did become? Is it possible to suggest whether any of this experience of his directly influenced his work? He's he's known for being. Uh, the sort of uh, uh, photographic surrealist. He quite deliberately said about making pictures that looked different from those in the uh, 30s and 40s. He was, uh, uh, and is most famous for uh, for doing the picture of Salvador Dali and the, the cat and the water where they're all in the air. Uh-huh. Uh, but other uh, photos, again, which do have a, the look almost of a Dali picture, for example. Um, did any of this extraordinary and terrible uh, aspect of his early life can that be traced to his work? This is one of those things that from the actual documentary data that I have, I couldn't necessarily prove it. Uh, and, and Halsman did not like to talk about this earlier part of his life. I mean, he, I think he really wanted to put it behind him and he didn't, it wasn't useful to him professionally to have it on his resume that he had been in prison. Um, and, uh, and it was very scarring to him emotionally and he did not want to ever think about it again. Um, so, he doesn't ever connect those two two parts of his life. I, for me, as a novelist, I, I certainly have supposed that there's a, a definite connection. Um, uh, some people have observed that there's a, a, a poetic kind of relationship between his photos of people jumping up in the air and this haunting image of his father falling down off of the trail in the Alps, uh, it does seem striking to me that, that he even describes the moment where he thought he saw his father falling. It's, it's unclear whether he really did see his father or not, but he sort of has this image in his mind because his father actually w- was assaulted at some point on the trail and he, he didn't see that part of it. But he, he, he recalled in an almost photographic kind of way this image of his father tilting backward falling down off off of the trail and his father did fall and and landed below the trail um when he found him he was lying below the the trail and then he takes all these photographs of people leaping up in the air e- even if even if his jump photos for example are not uh literally meant to to contradict this image of his father falling down 
in a in a larger, more metaphorical sense, there 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 really seems to me to be a definite relationship between the joy, the sort of upwelling of joy in his work, the the the, the choice of subject matter, his celebrity photos, his his fashion photos, his photos of beautiful women. It's all very life loving, and it does seem to um, be very pointedly um, looking in another direction from the horrors of uh, the Nazis and false accusations and anti-Semitism and being in prison and suicidality. And finally, we have an audiobook extract from James Oswald's Natural Causes, read by Ian Hanmore. Be aware, this book opens on a crime scene, and if this extract causes adverse symptoms of extreme fear, you can call the Natural Causes Special Helpline on 0800 0830 414. He shouldn't have stopped. It wasn't his case. He wasn't even on duty. But there was something about the blue flashing lights, the scene of crime van and uniforms setting up barriers that Detective Inspector Anthony McLean could never resist. He'd grown up in this neighbourhood, this rich part of town with its detached houses surrounded by large walled gardens. Old money lived here and old money knew how to protect its own. You were very unlikely to see a vagrant wandering these streets, never mind a serious crime. But now two patrol cars blocked the entrance to a substantial house, and a uniformed officer was busy unwrapping blue and white tape. McLean fished out his warrant card as he approached. What's going on? There's been a murder, sir. That's all anyone's told me. The constable tied off the tape and started on another length. McLean looked up the sweeping gravel drive towards the house. A sock van had backed halfway up, its doors wide. A line of uniforms inched their way across the lawn, eyes down in search of clues. It wouldn't hurt to have a look, see if there was anything he could do to help. He knew the area, after all. He ducked under the tape and made his way up the drive. Past the battered white van, a sleek black Bentley glinted in the evening light. Alongside it, a rusty old Mondeo lowered the tone. McLean knew the car, knew its owner all too well. Detective Chief Inspector Charles Dugard was not his favourite superior officer. If this was one of his investigations, then the deceased must have been important. That would explain the large number of uniforms drafted in, too. What the fuck are you doing here? McLean turned to the familiar voice. Dugard was considerably older than him, mid-fifties at least, his once red hair now thin and greying, his face florid and lined. White paper overalls pulled down to his waist and tied in a knot beneath his sagging gut. He had about him the air of a man who's just nipped out for a fag. I was in the neighbourhood, saw the patrol cars in the lane, and you thought you'd stick your nose in, eh? What are you doing here, anyway? I didn't mean to butt into your investigation, sir. I, I just thought, well, since I grew up in the area, I might have been able to help. Dugard let out an audible sigh, his shoulders sagging theatrically. Oh, well, you're here. Might as well make yourself useful. Go and talk to that pathologist friend of yours. 
See what wonderful insights he's come up with this time. McLean started towards the front door, but was stopped by Dugid's hand catching him tight around the arm. And make sure you report back to me when you're done. I don't want you sloping off before we've wrapped this up. The inside of the house was almost painfully bright after the soft city darkness descending outside. McLean entered a large hall through a smaller but still substantial porch. Inside, a chaos of sock officers bustled about in white paper boiler suits, dusting for fingerprints, photographing everything. Before he could get more than a couple of steps, a harassed young woman handed him a rolled-up white bundle. He didn't recognise her, a new recruit to the team. You'll want to put these on if you're going in there, sir. She motioned behind her with a quick jab of her thumb to an open door on the far side of the hallway. It's an awful mess. You'd no want to ruin your suit, or contaminate any potential evidence. McLean thanked her, pulling on the paper overalls and slipping the plastic covers over his shoes before heading for the door, keeping to the raised walkway the sock team had laid out across the polished wood floor. Voices muttered from inside, so he stepped in. It was a gentleman's library, leather-bound books lining the walls in their dark mahogany shelves. An antique desk sat between two tall windows, its top clear, save for a blotter and a mobile phone. Two high-backed leather armchairs were arranged either side of an ornate fireplace facing the unlit fire. The one on the left was unoccupied. Some items of clothing neatly folded and placed across the arm. McLean crossed the room and stepped around the other chair, his attention immediately drawn to the figure sitting in it, his nose wrinkling at the foul stench. The man looked almost calm his hands resting lightly on the arms of the chair, his feet slightly apart on the floor. His face was pale, eyes staring straight ahead with a glazed expression. Black blood spilled from his closed mouth, dribbling down his chin, and at first McLean thought he was wearing some kind of dark velvet coat. Then he saw the guts, blue-grey, shiny coils slipping down onto the Persian rug on the floor. Not velvet. Not a coat. Two white-clad figures crouched beside them, seemingly unwilling to trust their knees to the blood-soaked carpet. Christ on a stick! McLean covered his mouth and nose against the iron tang of blood and the richer smell of human ordure. One of the figures looked around, and he recognised the city pathologist, Angus Cadwallader. Ah, Tony! Come to join the party, have you? He stood, handing something slippery to his assistant. Take that, will you, Tracy? Barnaby Smythe. McLean stepped closer. I didn't realise you knew him, Cadwallader said. Oh, yes, I knew him. Not well. I, I mean, I've never been in this place before. But, sweet Jesus, what happened to him? Didn't Dagwood brief you? McLean looked around expecting to see the chief inspector close behind and wincing at the casual use of Dugard's nickname. But apart from the assistant and the deceased, they were alone in the room. He wasn't too pleased to see me, actually. Thinks I want to steal his glory again. And do you? No? 
I was just off up to my grand's place. Notice the cars. McLean saw the pathologist smile and shut up. How is Esther, by the way? Any improvements? Not really, no. I'll be seeing her later, if I don't get stuck here, that is. Well, I wonder what she'd have made of this mess. Cadwallader waved a blood-smeared, gloved hand at the remains of what had once been a man. I have no idea. Something gruesome, I'm sure. You pathologists are all alike. So tell me what happened, Angus. As far as I can tell, he's not been tied down or restrained in any way, which would suggest he was dead when this was done. But there's too much blood for his heart not to have been beating when he was first cut open, so he was most likely drugged. We'll know when we get the toxicology report back. Actually, most of the blood's come from this. He pointed to a loose red flap of skin circling the dead man's neck. And judging by the spray on the legs and on the side of the chair, that was done after his entrails were removed. I'm guessing the killer did that to get them out of the way whilst he poked about inside. Major internal organs all seem to be in place except for a chunk of his spleen, which is missing. There's something in his mouth, sir, the assistant said, standing up with a creak of protest from her knees. Cadwallader shouted for the photographer, then bent forward, forcing his fingers between the dead man's lips and prizing his jaw apart. He reached in and pulled a slimy, red, smooth mess out of it. McLean felt the bile rise in his gorge and tried not to retch as the pathologist held up the organ to the light. Ah, there it is. Excellent. And that's it from the Penguin Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. To find out more about the authors and books featured in this episode, visit the website, thepenguinpodcast.co.uk. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email them to podcast at uk.penguingroup.com or find us on Twitter at Penguin Podcast. You've been listening to The Penguin Podcast.